welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Michael Lerner and Nipun Mehta. Nipun Mehta, welcome to the New School. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I was sharing with you just before we began to record that I spent the last hour looking at your website, charityfocus.org, and I had the really unusual experience for me that I was so blown away by what you've done that I went into a quite altered uh, state of mind, and uh, usually I'm very focused before these conversations on the questions I'm going to ask and uh, how the interview will go, but I found myself just sitting in my chair just um, with a sense of wonder about uh, what you have uh, accomplished and created, which I think is quite unique uh, in my experience of uh, the Internet. I just wondered, um, what is your experience of uh, the work you're doing in terms of uh, what you call the invisible revolution of the Internet? What do you mean by that? Well, um, I really find... Well, thank you, Michael, for those kind words. Uh, I would add one correction in the sense that I don't feel that this is sort of my accomplishment or even our accomplishment. It's uh, it's almost a birthing that happens in its own self-organized ways, and we all get to be instruments in that. Um, but I do think that the Internet has created a new dimension uh, of organizing, a, a sort of new possibility that previously wasn't there. And I feel like it's in response to our sort of collective conscious rising to new levels. Um, and in that sense, uh, the invisible revolution, I mean, the invisible matrix that connects us all, um, you know, sages have been talking about it for ages, so many people experience it, uh, consciously and, and probably unconsciously, everybody experiences it. Um, and so it's really the question is how we can uh, be more in alignment with that invisible matrix. Uh, and I think what the Internet does is uh, creates organizational paradigms that bring us more in harmony uh, with those uh, subtler underlying currents of life that uh, make us all alive. You speak of a collective conscious rising to new levels. Are you suggesting that there is the possibility that humanity as a whole can move toward a consciousness where we might resolve some of the terrible crises that we face today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel that almost uh, all the time, I mean, all the problems that we experience and encounter are really an invitation uh to reach newer heights of, of that uh, collective consciousness. And I feel that in that sense, every, every problem, every sense of suffering is a gift uh, and, and a calling to deepen our awareness. I forget who it was, but someone once spoke of the Internet as the exoskeleton of a collective human consciousness. I think thinking in terms of Teilhard de Chardin's understanding of the movement of human consciousness forward. What is your sense of uh, the Internet, the, the web as a whole, in terms of its impact on human consciousness? Clearly it's being used for uh, many darker uh, purposes, uh, and then there is this possibility that it contributes to the rise in consciousness. How do you appraise its effect on human consciousness as a whole? I, I feel like it's a tool. Uh, it's a tool, and like all tools, it's going to be, uh, it can be used in good ways, and it can be used in not so good ways. And uh, really, the revolution has to happen within the human heart, within our minds. Um, and I think until we do that, we're going to have problems, no matter what the tools. Um, but I think that the Internet really is in its infancy right now, and because it's in its infancy, you have this potential uh, to really leverage uh, its, you know, its positive traits, so to say, to spin it in certain directions, uh, which may not be open, you know, once it matures. So just as a child's mind, you know, Zen mind, beginner's mind, just as a child's mind is is so open, um, and hence, uh, you know, 
absolutely anything is possible. I think in that sense, the Internet provides us that window at this moment in time. Uh, I think 10 years down the road, it's going to be a different ballgame. Um, and I think that maybe, you know, 200 years down the road, we'll have other tools where uh, these possibilities are, are there to sort of catapult our, uh, our consciousness and deepen our generosity in deep ways. I, I don't see it as a, you know, I, I don't think Internet's going to solve all the problems. I don't think, you know, uh, that it's this is it. This is the one time in, the, in all of eternity that this is possible. Uh, but I do think it's a special time, you know. I, I yeah. think uh, and we can uh, and ought to take advantage of this uh, and save ourselves from suffering. I'd like to turn to your work with Charity Focus, which you started in April 1999 with three friends. Uh, tell us a little about Charity Focus. Charity Focus, uh, oh, I mean, you know, like all good things in life, I don't think I can define it. Uh, it's at a very loose level. It's an experiment in generosity. I mean, the idea was, can we just give uh, without any strings attached? Um, and that was it. None of us had ever run an organization. None of us had ever given a talk. None of us knew how to you know, file for a 501c3 status. We didn't even have an organizational name. We just said we want to help. And I got a bunch of my friends together, and let's, I said, let's go out and do something good. And we ended up going to a homeless shelter in, uh, in San Jose. And uh, we go in and we said, we're here to help, you know, and, and uh, what can we do? Um, and after a while, we ended up uh, building a website for them because that was something that was in our sort of domain. We were in the Silicon Valley, and we had those skills. And, you know, at that time, 1999, uh, nonprofits were far from being on the Internet or even understanding its powers. Uh, we actually had a brochure back then, Michael. It was, it was really funny because we had a brochure that, like, was meant to be for nonprofits to convince them to try to leverage the Internet, you know, until we went through the list. And, uh, of course, now the scene is entirely different. But we started in that way, and then our whole idea was that we just want to give, and this is one manifestation that seems to work. And uh, we started by building websites for nonprofits in the Silicon Valley, and uh, we set the price, and we said the price is going to be zero. We're not going to ask for anything in return, and it was... It was fantastic, the response. I mean, people, I feel that people inevitably, time and time again, will just respond to generosity. Pure, authentic, raw generosity will inevitably elicit a response. Um, and it did. Certainly that's been our experience in the Silicon Valley in April 99 and ever since. Um, but back then we had lots of, you know, lots of volunteers that said, yeah, sign me up. I'm ready to give without any strings attached. And people were surprised because that was, you know, what you read in the papers was, hey, you got to get your, you know, big car and big house and next promotion and get your million dollars and whatnot. Um, but this was a different response. Um, this was about engaging the creativity and, and the enthusiasm and the energy all of the Silicon Valley in a different direction. Um, and because our, our price was right, you know, nonprofits were more than happy to raise their hands and say, yeah, yeah, we need help too. Um, and so that's sort of how it began. Very serendipitously, uh, we had no intention of growing uh, an organization. We didn't even know what was going to be the name of it at the time, and we just kind of responded to everything as it happened. And today... Can you describe Charity Focus? Uh, it's just as hard to describe it today. Uh, but what ended up happening over the years is uh, is that we I often I often tell um, a lot of people that you know if we were in the 1800s uh, we would do farming uh, and we would be like these nice guy farmers. Uh, but in this context, in this time and space. Uh, what ended up happening was that all our principles, we had three principles to start with, and and those were really, you know, it was power of being volunteer-run, um, not asking for anything, and just trusting, um, and doing small things. And those three principles are crucial to any model of scale on the Internet. And we just kind of happened upon it just because of our alignment with our spiritual values. 
um, and it seemed to work. So as a result, our manifestations kept growing. We had lots and lots of volunteers, and it was coming, you know, by the thousands and by the tens of thousands. Um, and we started to do different things. Uh, we started to run different portals. Um, so we used to do websites for nonprofits that sort of went into web solutions for nonprofits. Then we went into web services, sort of web portals, um, which would provide thematic services for the whole world. Um, and these included, uh, you know, one of the first examples of that was um, there was a there was a dot com. Uh, by the name of Pledge Page, and they allowed non-profit. They allowed uh, runners who were, and you know, fundraisers who were trying to raise money for good causes, and they allowed them to put their photos and diaries and message boards and guest books and what you know, all the good stuff about who they are and why they're running this cause. They allowed them to put it online, and sort of, so you can spread it through the internet and email. And they were going to close. They were a for-profit company. Uh, one of these dot coms, and they're providing a great service, but they're going to just going to shut down because uh, there was, uh, you know, they couldn't sustain themselves. And so we went in and we said, you know, let's do something radical. You know, let's take it on. And so here was a dot org. You know, this is what the headlines of the newspapers are pretty crazy because it's like a dot org with no money takes on a dot com that was trying to make millions. Um, so there is some poeticness to it. Um, but what ended up happening surprised all of us. Uh, we didn't really know how, you know, how strong our infrastructure was, but uh, we took this portal on, and we doubled all their numbers in three months. And, and, you know, we made everything free, and that attracted a lot of people. And we were just able to scale up. And so we said, wow, you know, maybe we're on to something. Um, and so that was sort of our entry into different portals and, and now we run, you know, all kinds of portals from a daily good news site to a video portal to, a, you know, a kindness portal that promotes sort of, uh, that uses smile cards to promote kindness in the world. And uh, we have a conversations.org, which is a gift economy print magazine, and, and the list goes on. So there's just a whole bunch of uh, different projects. Uh, but all of them have the same theme. You know, it's, the idea is to is to be the change you wish to see in the world. I mean, I think Gandhi put it so well. And when I went to the website, uh, I found it organized under three headings, inspiration, volunteers, and nonprofits. And under inspiration, there was Daily Good, which is a, a service that gives you the, the good news of uh, uh, each day, a bit of good news each day. Uh, and uh, then... Uh, under that's one of them, and then under volunteers, you mentioned the the smile uh, cards. Uh, describe the uh, the smile cards and how they work. Oh, I love smile cards, Michael. Thanks for asking me that question. <laughs> um, so it was uh, it, it was fantastic. I was talking with one of my uh, cousins, who's a really cool guy, and you know has his own band and whatnot. And we were talking about college pranks and. Uh, we started breaking down, you know, the, the intentions of why people do these pranks, you know, whether it's from, uh, you know, it's creative, it's collaborative, it's challenging, it's fun. But at the end of the day, it's largely destructive. And so I sort of, I asked him, you know, I said, do you think we can do something constructive that has all those same elements in them? And we came up uh, with this idea of smile cards. Um, and the whole, you know, the whole concept is, that you do an act of kindness for somebody, and, uh, and anonymously, because that's the hardest thing to do, and uh, you leave a smile card behind. So let's say you're paying toll for the guy. You're paying your toll, and you can pay three bucks extra and pay toll for the guy behind you. And uh, when the guy comes to the, you know, to the window, uh, he gets a smile card and says, "Hey, somebody's paid for your toll as an act of kindness, and now you go and pay it forward." And uh, so that's that's the project, and we we did a couple of radical things with that um, because we're so rooted in in sort of this gift economy idea and just just kind of infinite trust in generosity. Um, I don't know how else to express it, but it's just this deep deep trust. Uh, we do radical things, um, and you know some of them 
uh, people look at it and say, mm, yeah, I don't know how that's going to survive, you know, but it does because it's rooted in generosity. So similarly with uh, with this helpothers.org site, um, which is the home of Smile Cards, uh, we had... Uh, we did a couple of things. One was we said that, uh, you know, we would not have, we would try to keep it completely brandless online. Um, so when you go about us, you know, it says we are you. I mean, there's no people or there's no we are running this or this is our plan or this is our agenda. It's just it's just us. Um, and so that was cool. Uh, and certainly, you know, there are bounds um, so when people donate X amount of money, then they have to find out who's the organization behind it. But by and large, we don't, you know, there's no identity on the site. Um, but second thing was that if somebody wanted cards, um, they could get it online. They could download them and take it to their printers. But if they couldn't, they could order it online. And it was completely free. So you could be in Zambia. And you could order smile cards, and you'll get them next week. And there's no cost. <laughs> oh, that's just wonderful. And you have a, a list on the site. You mentioned the toll booth, you know, paying the toll for the person behind you. And then you list favorite ideas like drop off a plant or flowers or an apple pie at the police department or uh, order someone a dessert anonymously at a restaurant or... Uh, Oh yeah. Uh, take flowers to a hospital ward and leave them for someone who hasn't had any visitors. So there's and then there's just a list of hundreds of other possibilities and and the experience of uh, for me of going to the website and and just immersing myself in one after another of these extraordinary ideas. Um, tell us a little about KarmaTube. Uh, KarmaTube is another one of these things that sort of engages people in action. Um, the Internet is, uh, is the first time that inspiration and action are on the same medium. So you have usually you watch TV and you say, okay, tomorrow i got to wake up and i got to remember to look up what, you know, I saw a very inspiring ad and i got to look them up in the phone book or ask somebody or you pick up the phone call and call 411. Internet is the first medium where you can see something inspiring that moves you and boom, right away on the same platform you can uh, do, you can have a action. And so we looked at this whole YouTube phenomenon. You know, YouTube is growing like crazy. I, mean, I think they're getting, last year, um, in 2004, 2005, sorry, they were getting 10,000 views a day. 2006, they got about 100,000 views a day. Um, and it's just like growing and growing like crazy. And so we looked at YouTube and you said, you know, anyone who takes a deep look at it says, well, there's a, just a lot of trash on it, you know, but there's a bunch of good stuff, too. Um, so the whole idea of KarmaTube was to feature videos but couple them with three small actionable items that everybody can take. Um, so you see something, you know, there was recently, there was a video of this, uh, of this I think, 80-year-old woman who had spent 30 years recycling aluminum cans and she donated uh, all of that to, you know, create a, to build a community swimming pool. Right, I saw that. Actually, she was on, uh, uh, on, on public television as well, uh, or on, uh, she was featured on some major television program recently where I saw her as well. Oh, absolutely. Story. Yeah. It, it's great because you look at that and you say, oh, I can, you know, I can recycle some cans, you know, you can, or you look at the free hugs video, which has been all over the internet, and you say, oh, yeah, I could go out and do something nice like that. It doesn't take any money, but it's a good thing to do, and it changes my mood and changes the mood of those around me. Tell us the story of Johnny the Bagger. <laughs> That's the current video. Right. Johnny the Bagger. It's, it's a great story. Um, of uh, of a kid with it's a true story of a kid with uh, Down syndrome, and he goes to a, one of these customer service kind of pep rallies that they have at their school, at their work, sorry, at a, at a grocery store, and you know the woman says everybody should try to put their heart into what they're doing, try to put your own signature, your own personalized message into whatever you're doing. And Johnny goes home, talks to his dad, and says, "Well, you know, I'm just a bagger. What can I do?" And uh, at some point, he, he has this idea. He's like, oh, I know what I could do. I'm going to write up a little thought or a little quote. And his dad helped him print it out. 
and every day, whenever he, you know, he'd take a whole stack of these, um, and when he's bagging them, he would put his thought of the week or thought of the day into this bag, and people would just leave, and they were so encouraged by it that, you know, people would come back and say, oh, I want Johnny's thought. And at one point in this video, which I think is the most powerful uh, moment of the video, you know, there's a huge line, and uh, the manager says, hey, well, you know, we need more, you know, we need more cashiers, everybody just open up, and he opens up a bunch of these stands, and nobody leaves. Everybody wants to be in that line for this, you know, for the message of, uh, you know, Johnny's Johnny's message of the day. Um, and it's really powerful how, you know, anyone in any position can really do something if their heart's in the right place. You have another uh, portal that you that you uh, provide on conversations, interviews with social artists. Um, and uh, these are conversations.org, hosts in-depth interviews of everyday heroes and a broad spectrum of artists. And I think in a... Uh, uh, earlier conversation we had, you were telling me about someone who goes to uh, clean parks every day. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, so conversations.org uh, is the website, but the uh, you know name of the magazine is Works and Conversations. Right. And uh, there is this the editor of the magazine, Richard, um, he was at a park and he saw this Filipino man sweeping. And his name was, uh, you know, as he later found out, Demetrio Braceros. And he goes and he, he talks to him and he connects with him and he finds out that he is just a volunteer. He sweeps the park just as his sort of act of community service. And he's an artist and he does these intricate wooden carvings. And he just leaves them in the park. I mean, the whole idea is to beautify the park. And these are, I mean, these are really beautiful that you could definitely sell them. And there's photos of them. It's obvious that, you you know, these would have a pretty high price tag, but he just leaves them there. And so Richard at one point asked him, you know, in the interview, it says, um, so aren't you afraid that somebody will take these? And he says, no, I'm not. Actually, would you like one? You could take one home, too. And that kind of an attitude, you know, these are the sort of, I, I feel like, the hidden artists uh, that aren't going to make the, the covers of all your uh, traditional magazines and the traditional media. And I, I really feel that these, we need to celebrate these unsung heroes and everyday artists. Um, and I think uh, Conversations.org attempts to do that. I love the idea of the phrase, uh Conversations, interviews with social artists. I love the concept of the social artist, someone who has made works of service into an art form. Yeah. Yeah, um, beautiful. It, it, it is, it is. I think there's a quote by Kumara Swami uh, that talks about, uh, it says that, you know, artist isn't a special kind of a person. Every person is a special kind of an artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, just having given... Uh, listeners a sense of, of the, the breadth and depth of, of Charity Focus. I'd like to turn a little bit to your story. Uh, you were born in India, is that right? I was. Uh, yeah. What kind of family did you come from in India? Well, as in, we're, you know, we're a middle-class family in India. Um, I grew up, I was born in Amdavad, which is where... Uh, Gandhi, for the large part, uh, was settled in, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a great upbringing. I had a my parents are really um, they're very grounded in values, but at the same time very open, um, and that helped me. You know, they would set some bounds and then said, you know, you got to find your own answers, and that's probably been the biggest blessing of my life. And you came to the United States when you were... I was in seventh grade. I was probably about 12 or 13. Um, and so I had uh, I had my initial upbringing was in India. I used to say half of my life in India, half here, but that's no longer the case. What were your first impressions of the United States when you came here? What, what was it like to arrive uh, 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 in the United States for you? Oh, I, I mean, I think, you know, anyone who arrives in middle school 
uh, it's a difficult time. I mean, that's when people are, you know, all the other students are finding themselves and uh, they're trying to explore life in so many ways. And being from an entirely different culture um, is is a difficult transition, no doubt. Um, So at at that level, it was, you know, it was difficult. Uh, Maybe difficult is too strong a word, but it certainly had its major challenges. Um, You came in seventh grade? I came in seventh grade, yeah. I was in middle school. So what were you like as an eighth grader? I I was... um, That's a hard question to really try to pin down. I mean, I don't know how I define myself. I was always, uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, I always uh, asked the deeper questions of life. I mean, I was just interested in, I would read, you know, texts from all different religions and really try to get at the core of, okay, so what exactly is happening? And I I was also um, blessed, uh, you know, to have influences in my life that, um, you you know, just spontaneous uh, occurrences that would happen. I would run into this sage or that nun or... You know, somebody who was uh, who had a lot of wisdom, and they ended up guiding me at that right point. Give us right an point. example of that. Um, so many examples. I, I can tell you, the first time um, four of us, my brother and my parents, uh, we went back to India. I must have been maybe fourteen or fifteen at the time. We took a, decided to take a trip back to India, and on the plane, um, yeah, on the stopover in Japan, uh, before you get to India, we had. Uh, we saw this guy at the airport, um, and he was—he had a musical instrument. He was an old man with a beard, Japanese man. And he, you know, there seemed to be a lot of people around him. My mom sort of noticed him. He's like, oh, that seems like, a, you know, uh, it seems like somebody who is important or significant in this culture. And so we had no idea, but we just sort of noticed that. And then we sat down, and, you know, we had the, there was, three seats, and so my parents were in the back two seats, my brother and I in the front two, and there was a third seat next to my brother and I, and this man comes up, and he's, you know, he's an old Japanese man, and just very radiant, very compassionate, and he just looks at us, and he's just looking at us, and he's looking at us, and I said, you know, I we were kind of confused. We said, why is this man looking at us? And so he was smiling, and so... After about 20 awkward seconds, I said, you know, can I help you put your instrument up on the top? And he says, yes, yes. And so I did. I helped him. Um, And he sat next to us. And over the next several hours, I mean, he basically rocked our world in so many unthinkable ways. I mean, he just, all the things you assume about life, those are just not true for him. I mean, he could see things, he could tell about people, he could, you know, he said it was planned that we we're going to be on the, you know, on the seats next to each other, and and so on, you know. And I don't know how much wisdom there was, or how much of it was eternal or not. But that that point, it definitely rocked our world. And mm-hmm. um, and you look at that and you say, yeah, you know, that was cool. It it forced me to think way out of the box and said, well, I've just met a man for whom such and such rules don't apply. And so, what's really going on? Uh, and so I, and then I would investigate. And as I, I found that as I find a couple of answers, then more questions would sort of pop up by themselves, or more things perhaps that were always there, um, start surfacing, and and I start to see them. really been on a somewhat conscious, increasingly conscious uh, spiritual journey since childhood. Um, I would say so, yeah. Um, That's unusual. Most people don't get there until they're uh, at least teens or 20s or 30s. But I think it became more conscious as I got older. I mean, I was, you know, I wanted to be a tennis pro when I was in my high school and college years and then I kind of went on this, I was put on this default path of making more and more money and, and succeeding in the professional realm. And I had, you know, I had to unlearn a lot of the things that I learned, and, and perhaps part of me is still unlearning that, so unpacking the bags. 
But you write in your uh, one of your websites that that you you say I believe in going all out. Uh, I was a junior in college at 17, but finally graduated at 21 after taking some years off to play tennis. At 11, I roller skated my heart out to be second in the country. As an unrated player, I once beat a Russian master in chess. On my first day on the ski slopes, I went down a black diamond slope. So you're clearly somebody who who sort of goes for it and whatever uh, dimension of life you happen to find yourself. I do. I I like to push bounds, and and, uh, I am so lucky that I I think I've finally hit upon the right challenge, which is the challenge of who really am I. Um, as you know, you can take that attitude of go all out in all kinds of different directions, and uh, I I feel fortunate to have channeled that that sort of energy that I seem to have uh, within me in the direction of self understanding and and generosity and growth. In the segment of your website on frequently asked questions, so the question is, what do you think about most? And your answer is death and service. Aren't you glad you asked the question? And I, I love that. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean about death and service is what you think about most? <laughs> um, I, you know, as uh, as macabre as it may sound, uh, it's, it's true. I, I really am rooted in impermanence. And I like to be rooted more and more so at even the deeper layers of my mind to be rooted in impermanence. And that's really a practice for me. Um, I think a lot of times we tend to find security in permanent things. Oh, I've got this. I have this. I can hold on to this. Um, and that tends to be our security and sort of our comfort zone. Um, and over the years, I mean, I think I've realized that you can't really hold on to anything. I mean, everything's just going to change, and it's constantly changing. And so if you're really going to be a happy person, you're going to be, you need to be rooted in constant change. Um, you need to be okay with things transitioning from one form to another. And to me, death was a very, you know, was a very significant, um, it, it's a big thing. I mean, it's like, okay, at the end of the day, I'm going to be dead. Um, it's, you know, this person that I call Nippon is no longer there. So what happens? Um, and so that was always... That was always a question for me. And when I was 18, I used to volunteer at a hospice uh, where, you know, those who were terminally ill would go. And you're assigned all kinds of people from nurse to a spiritual counselor to, you know, a caretaker and whatnot. But, and there's also a volunteer. And uh, I got to be, you know, I decided that I was going to be a volunteer at a hospice. I wanted to go and, like... You know, I want to go to in the thick of things. I said, let's go uh, and, you know, serve people who are really having a hard time, who may be having a hard time uh, transitioning um, out of their physical selves. And so I was a volunteer at a hospice, and I can tell you, Michael, I mean, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty intense, pretty intense. So you'd get to know a bunch of people, and, and two weeks later, you know, they call you and said, yeah, such and such has passed away. How long did you do the hospice work? Uh, I don't know exactly how long, but I want to say about probably about two years. Mm. Um, you have to get trained, and it takes, you know, there's a six-month training period, and, and I was clearly the only 18-year-old in the room, you know, at any of their trainings. I mean, generally it's older people that would do it, and some people aren't really, you know, they don't want to deal with such kinds of things uh, at that point in life, but I did. And Can you I, describe... Uh, an experience that you had in hospice that has stuck with you with a individual person? Yeah. Um, at one point, I was uh, responsible for, you know, as a volunteer, I would go and get groceries for one of my sort of quote-unquote clients. Um, his name was Mr. Ahern. He'd, I think he had fought in the wars and he had he didn't have good relationships with his family, and so as he was dying, he's pretty much in the last stages, um, and there's none of his family members are there, um, and so he but he had a nice house, he had a nice car, and he had you know he was able to afford uh, a cook and all the kinds of amenities that one might need at that time, 
And I go in at one point, and I said uh, to Mr. Ahern, you know, Mr. Ahern, I've, uh, I'll I put your groceries. I used to get him, you know, I used to get him whatever he wanted. And I've been a vegetarian my whole life, but he loved, uh, you know, fish was the thing that he would always ask for. And so I would go to the stores, and I'd go to a local Safeway, and I said, you know, I, I don't know, here's this thing called Halibut. You know, can you, like, get me? Can you? That's where my friend wants, and I'm just with him, and he's on, you know, he's with the hospice and whatnot. And the people behind the counter would get excited, and they'd give me, like, the best fish, you know. Mm. And Mr. Ahern would be so excited. He's like, I don't know what you've done, but, like, the the food that you give me, I mean, I've never had such food in my life, you know, such fish in my life. And so one of those times, I go in to put the groceries, and I said, you know, Mr. Ahern, um, I've I've left him here. I'll see, you know I'll see you tomorrow. I've got a lot. You know I had a lot going on that day, and so I just wanted to do a quick drop in and drop off. And and he calls me from inside, um, and he says, Nipun, you know, can you come in? And I I did. I went in. And uh, you know, you have to imagine this man. He had tubes going inside of him. He was he was very much in the last stages of his uh, of his life as Mr. Ahern. And he 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 can't. He calls me in, and he starts talking to me. And he's you know he says a few things, and then every like two minutes or so, he'd take a huge deep breath. And he'd start talking again. And he starts talking about something entirely different. He starts talking about some random topic that has come in his mind. And he's just talking and talking and talking. And he is, at this point, not coherent at all. But he doesn't want me to leave. So he just keeps talking. He just keeps talking. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't, he's afraid. He's scared of what's coming next. And he really just wants to hang on to any bit of permanence that's there. And in that moment, I was that, and he did not want to let me go. And his expression of that was just talking and talking and talking. And I had to go, and at some point, I said, look, forget it. You know, what you have to do is not really all that important. You need to be here for this guy. And that was probably about ten minutes into his, you know, talking that I realized that I said that. And you won't believe it, Michael. I was there for three hours. Wow. And I just sat there listening to him and wishing him compassion. Mm. And I didn't even understand all, you know, what does all any of that mean? I was just there with him. Two days later, he passed away. Mm. And that, as an 18-year-old, you know, a couple of years later, I would go and, you know, get my first sort of real job. And when you sign this application, they tell you, how much, what percentage of your thing would you like to put in your 401k, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm 21, and you're telling me to plan for when I'm 65? I mean, who the heck even knows if I'm going to be around? Um, And so in little, little ways, like these kinds of deep insights and experiences with with the impermanence of life, you know? I mean, death is, is almost a negative word, perhaps, um, but with with this kind of connection, I think if we if we keep that connection, we do the little little things differently, and as a result, by the you know by the end of ten years, you're just in a completely different space. That's a beautiful story. Uh, as you know, uh, right now actually, I'm in the middle of the 134th uh, cancer help program here at Commonweal. We have. Mm-hmm. Eight participants over the last 22 years, we've done 134 of these weeks, and so the experiences with people who are close to the edge is something that um, I'm familiar with myself. Mm. Um, there are so many pieces to your story that I I want to touch on, but in your uh, in your uh, uh, biography on the web, you say. My 17th year transformed me in ways I can't describe in a sentence. What happened when you were 17 that transformed your life? That's a complicated question. Um, I I would say that was a formative year in many ways. Um, That was the year that, uh, you know, I decided to 
uh, yeah, I've always been pushing bounds, but that was the year I pushed my bounds in sort of an academic and athletic way. I uh, took 40 units, uh, semester units, at this junior college where I was, and I was there primarily to play tennis. Um, and it just it was it was pretty intense, and I had uh, I also had this you know underlying spiritual journey um that that's always been there but i think it was the 17th year that brought that into focus um i had a lot of experiences with myself uh, ultimately myself but um also with the community and life around me um that that taught me many things um and i was able to sort of transition from that and i could easily see um you know if i wasn't lucky or if I, I I don't know if luck is the right word um but I could have easily rotated in those conditions for you know decades um in one way shape or form or another um and I really felt like I experienced a lot in that year and I was able to you know say okay I've I've done that and that's not where my that's not where my cup you know that's not my cup of tea um, and that's so not at where that I'm point, going. did you have a sense uh, of greater clarity about your direction? Um, in a way, I mean, in a way, you could say I'm still confused. You know, I, I don't know if I have a clear direction. Um, I, my commitment is to try to walk through every door that that opens and and honor that. Um, and so, even at that time, you know, I would. Even with my junior, you know, junior college buddies, uh, I would just I would go up and I would go into empty classrooms and take a bunch of them and I would really try to figure out what life is uh, and say, look, you know, if you take this and you take this, and I sort of had this analytical view uh, in my in my own naivete, uh, and uh, you know that that drive of of trying to find out what's underneath all this was always there in me. Um, and I think I it, it came into clearer focus, but I think I sort of uh, there was there were probably a couple of roads that I could have taken, and I think my 17th year was one of those pivotal moments where I decided to take uh, a road that was um, that to me was a little bit uh, scarier, but a little bit more authentic. Also, in 2004 in June, you married Guri. Uh, on the first day of the seventh month, uh, the day after Guru Purnima, uh, you participated in an interfaith blessing ceremony. And nine faiths, including atheists, at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, <laughs> where you publicly shared your vows. And the vows are so beautiful. Um, let me just uh, describe a couple of them. Uh, do you, Nipun, and Guri pledge to help each other in developing your hearts and minds, cultivating compassion, generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom as you age and undergo the various ups and downs of life, and to transform them into the path of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity? Do you pledge to grow in Dharma? And then a series of others that end... Do you pledge to reinforce and complement each other's virtue? Do you pledge to trust the inexplicable ways of the universe? Do you pledge to be an instrument of selfless service? Do you pledge to be real in all situations? Do you pledge to cultivate gratitude for the boundless gifts you have received? Do you pledge to expand your family to include all living beings? And you write of Guri uh, as... Uh, someone who has, has been your inspiration uh, for a long time. Could you tell us a little about Guri and how she has inspired you? Yeah. Um, Guri has been... I, I've known Guri for a long time. Um, by long, I mean, you know, I'd known her well before we decided to get married, uh, probably eight or nine years before that. Um it was never clear to both of us um, because both of us have this strong sort of a monastic inclination almost. Uh, it was never clear that we were going to get married. And um, one fine day it was clear and we just, you know, we said we're going to do it and we did it that month. Um, Guri has been there for, it's, she's almost, you know, it's, it's like this, uh, I, I always think of a triangle. Um, when I think of the relationship between Guri and I and, and how deep it is, 
um, you know, if you look at a if you look at a triangle or you look at a mountain, if you think visualize a mountain, um, and you can you know somebody could be walking up to the top of the mountain from the east, and somebody else could be walking up to the top of the mountain from the west. And at some point, if you know that you are going to meet, you know, your friend on the other side at the top, that you keep going on your journey, and that as you walk in your own path towards the top, towards that one point, towards that, you know, complete unity. As you walk towards that and the other person is walking towards that, you're actually a lot closer to each other, even physically, you know, in so many ways. Um, And so that metaphor has always really rung true of, you know, both people, you can walk along the base and you can say, okay, we're coming closer to each other. And that's one form of closeness. Uh, but I think if you start walking towards the top from two different sides and and just know and trust that if it's that same one point you're going to, um, you're really coming closer to each other by walking your own independent path. Mm. Um, and that's, that, to me, really uh, encapsulates the relationship I have with, uh, with Guri. Um, it's been, you know, she's one of the, Guri and my brother, I always say, are like two of my, Sort of uh, guiding lights, or to my, you know, the, the foundation uh, on which I stand in so many ways. Um, Guri has provided a lot. She was there when we. She was one of the three people that was there when we did the first charity focus project. Uh-huh. She, she was there when we launched the smile cards. She was there when um, we did these. You know, we started these Wednesday gatherings at my place, um, at my parents' house in Santa Clara. And that's been going on, and there's thousands of people that have come through unorganized, unbranded, just, you know, just a house and people coming in to share some time of silence and uh, reflection. Um, And she's been there, you know, for so many things that I feel like we've grown together um, and in our own ways. Um, You know, certainly uh, we don't have any... You know, we're not, like, wedded to each other and, like, you, we do exactly the same thing that the other person does. Um, but uh, it's it's very powerful to have that kind of a partner in service, to have that kind of a mirror um, that will reflect honestly and sincerely um, what is your own deepest uh, understanding and your own deepest confusions. Um, and to have that uh, is a really beautiful thing. Um, I, I feel very, very grateful to have her in my life. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, my wife, Cheryl Patton, and I have a, a similar experience together, and I know how powerful that can be in, in, in one's life. Six months after your marriage, uh, you left home to journey to uh, India and to travel by foot, living on a dollar a day, eating wherever food is offered, sleeping wherever a flat surface is found. Ours was an unscripted spiritual pilgrimage to greet life in the farthest corners of our own consciousness. Tell us about that pilgrimage. <laughs> that, that, I think, in a way, is emblematic of uh, our relationship. Um, you know, we were, we were crazy people, and we were very clear about why we wanted to get married. Um, and it was not a deepening of attachment, but it was more of a you know, deepening of our own awareness of who we are and supporting each other in that journey. Um, And we really felt called to do it, and so we did it. Um, But it's, you know, six months into our marriage, uh, we decided to drop everything, and we sold all that we had and took a few boxes, left it at my uh, parents' place, and uh, said that, you know, let's charity focus at that time. The context was that charity focus at the time is doing great things, and um, although we don't deal with money, um, there's a lot of influence, you know, that comes when you're serving uh, in so many ways. And so with this influence comes power, and power tends to corrupt, and how do you know, you know? And so we said there's only one way to find out, and it's to, can you drop it all? Mm-hmm. And can you go to a place where nobody knows your name? Can you go to a place where you have no security of money? Can you go to a place where... Uh, you know, there is so much uncertainty and you are, have to be comfortable with that. And uncertainty sometimes even in a threatening, ominous way. 
Um, so are you comfortable with all of that? Are you comfortable that no business card is going to open any doors for you? Um, and what would happen, I mean, when you're tested in that deep way, are you still going to stick true to your values of compassion? Are you still going to talk about service? Are you still, you know, when you're hungry, can you still think of benefiting humanity? You know, are you still going to be on, you know, talking about compassion when you are threatened yourself? I mean, those were some of the questions, and so we said, let's do it. And we took a one-way ticket, and we, um, you know, my, my parents uh, had a, we had to have, we had to convince our parents that took a little bit to do something uh, crazy like that, but it was in the spirit of deepening our trust. Um, so we took a one-way ticket, went to India, went to the Gandhi Ashram because we were inspired by Gandhi, and said, we're going to walk south. And what was it like for you to come back to India? Having had, had you traveled to India on numerous occasions in between coming uh, as a child to the United States, or had you been pretty much immersed in the United States uh, in the interim? Oh, I had uh, I definitely taken some trips back, but this is a different kind of a trip that I think even if you're living in India, you don't get to know India in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you have... And especially when you go back from here, there's a tourist kind of a trip, and then there's a, you know, adventure kind of a trip. Uh, but this was a, this was a pilgrimage, and that's very, very different um, in terms of what you are ready to see, and in terms of what life shows you. You, you write. Before we started our pilgrimage, a group of kids once asked me the purpose of our trip. Rather spontaneously, I told them that my purpose is to move from the ego plan to the divine plan. And then you write a little later, my purpose in life then is clear. This is on your blog from the trip, after a thousand kilometers of walking. You write, my purpose in life then is clear to be an instrument of nature. Until I purify my heart to become that trans- that instrument, I will be grateful if I have the op- an opportunity to serve. But it is only after that blossoming of awareness, if what the sages say is true, I will truly serve. So it was a thousand kilometers on foot. It was, um, and then we ended up at a monastery, and um, we uh, we flipped a coin. <laughs> we said, "Is the journey inside or outside?" Um, and we flipped the coin, and the coin said, "Stay." And so we were largely meditating for the next three months. Mm. And and could you give us uh, one story of uh, of an encounter that you had on that journey that? Uh, that touched you both particularly? Um, there were many. Um, almost every day seemed like an encounter of sorts. Um, but there's... Um, yeah, I should, I'll talk about a time when... So it was really hot. Um, you have to visualize this scene where it's, you know, probably about 43 degrees centigrade. Um, and you're walking, and you're walking through some of the hills, and you may or may not, you know, you don't know how your where your food is going to come from. You don't know where you're going to sleep that night, and because it's so hot, generally you leave at like four or five a.m. and then you stop around eleven, and if needed, you can walk later in the evening as well. Um, and so one of those days, we're walking, and it's a it's a very sparse area, a very rural area. Um, and we're just walking, it's hot, I have a bandana on my head, and uh, we both have, you know, backpacks with a few a few of our essentials, and uh, my knee starts to hurt, and it's really, I mean, it's, it feels like it's really busted, and uh, it's every time I take a step, it's, you know, it starts aching, um, and so Gurry brings out something, and you know, I, like we do one of these ointments and we put it on and I take my bandana off and I wrap my thing around my knee and we're walking and walking and still it's hurting. I mean, you know, that was no solution. Oh, we're still going on. And at one point, you know, I have this realization that, look, forget it. You know, you just got to gotta be clear. You know why you're doing this and you got to stay firm in that. This is when, you know, this is that moment when you're going to be, you're either going to break down or break through. And you've got to break through. Here it is. Just be still. Be with it. Everything comes and goes. Just be with it. And I was, you know, as I was thinking this, you know, I was, 
I, my sort of back went upright, and I started walking in a really confident poise sort of a manner. And right then, like this guy comes out of nowhere. And, I mean, not out of nowhere. He's from there, but he just, you know, we just see a, a guy come up on this sparse road. And he says, um, would you, uh, can I host you for the day? It was a very odd question for somebody to just ask that right off the bat, you know, and and we were like, uh, yeah, we have no idea where we're going to stay, you know, we said, but we said we were trying not to be too eager, you know, we said, um, yeah, you know, if that works for you, we would be happy to come to your place. And he says, yeah, but I have to tell you that I'm really poor and, uh, you know, I don't have any electricity in my house and I don't have any running water. Um, I'm, you know, we barely were on sort of hand to mouth every day. Kind of, he explained this whole situation, and I, I looked at him, and he had no idea what kind of a pilgrimage we were on, and he had no idea that my knee was busted, and he, you know, and he, uh, I look at him with, with genuine compassion and so much compassion, you know, and I said, my brother, I would be happy to come to your house, and. We ended up, uh, we walked another couple kilometers through all the different fields, and he knew all the shortcuts, and we ended up at his hut, and um, and it was it was awesome because he says, you know, right as we go in, you know, his view is everything is God, and everything is a reflection of God, and, you know, his view was that here God had sent these people to our house, and so he tells his wife, right, as we come in, he's like, hey, we, you know, God has come to our our doors, and we need to, you know, we need to make some food. And so she goes out the back, and at that time I didn't understand, and she goes out, and she goes out to borrow food. And they bring us, you know, they bring us some food. And, I mean, it was pretty obvious what was happening at that point, and three of us sat down, and his wife was serving and she'd even made like a small sweet dish. Um, I mean, they really were trying to see. I mean, these were people just out of nowhere, just trying to see the divine in everything, you know. And they, they, there was some sweet that was in my plate, and I, you know, I tend to love sweets. And uh, I, I try to tease Guri that I don't have a sweet tooth, but Guri's always telling me that I do. And, you know, when you're in a walk like this, you don't get anything you want. You get whatever is coming, you know. And so here was something sweet. At least it looked sweet. And I I immediately, instead of eating everything else, as hungry as I was, I said, okay, I'm going to go for that first. And so I start eating it. And I realized that it didn't have sugar. Mm. And I still ate it. I ate it and I loved it, and I and <laughs> and by the time it went to you know Udeshi Daka is who is the gentleman who saw us on the street, he had his whole meal and then he had the dessert at the end, and he looks to his wife, and like with almost tears in his eyes he says, "You didn't put sugar," and you know they couldn't afford sugar, and that's why they couldn't put it. And he says, "You go and borrow some sugar." And they fed us in this way, and you don't even know how to respond to that. You know, I mean, that is like so much gratitude that you we you cannot eat when you have had one meal in that way. You simply can all the meals of for the rest of your life will be changed. I mean, it's just you cannot have another meal without feeling gratitude. And so, what they gave us was an incredible, incredible gift, and. You know, to make a long story short, the next day um, we ended up at another school, and, and there were a bunch of thugs, and we ended up, uh, you know, trying to convince. We convinced the thugs to try to channel their thug sort of energy into goodness in the world, and they said by the end of it they were like, "No, all right, you tell us what what do you want us to do, you know, and how should we do it?" And um, and they just were lacking ideas, and they wanted to channel their sort of energy in this direction after hearing some stories. And so I said, look, there's this guy, his name is Udeshi, and he lives somewhere in the villages down there. You'll just have to find out, because by asking, you're, you know, and they're all sort of farm boys. And they were like, oh, no, Nipun, we got it. And I said, you know, you got to go and find them a bag of sugar, all this food, and anonymously drop it off 
at his doorsteps. And they were like, oh, we're on it, we're on it, we're on it, you know. And that was incredible, you know. So one day after another, when you live in this way, I mean, it just really transforms you at the core of your being. Nikon Mehta, thank you so much for your work, uh, for deeply inspiring me, for uh, perhaps changing my life a little bit and changing the lives of so many other people. Your work is a blessing, and we are in your debt. Thank you. It's, a, it's an opportunity. It's a privilege to be having this opportunity to be of service. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.